This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought of the people working at tech companies, the better. The blockchain idea was around 91, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Software and Technology Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And wow, we've got a lot of software content that we've produced in the last week, two weeks. Um, we started off January pretty strong. I got to travel to CES in Las Vegas, and our chief digital editor of B2B Media, Mr. Jeffrey Short, got to travel to NRF the big retail show based out of New York, and for both of our trips, not only were they overwhelming in the best possible way, and that's kind of how I've been describing CES now for the past couple weeks, not only were they insightful, but we really got to see the effect that software and technology is having on a variety of different industries. I mean, CES is a consumer electronics show, but it wasn't just focused on cool tech. It really was cool tech that is having tangible effects on a variety of different industries from telecommunications to transportation to retail to uh, pro-AV. It's pretty exciting stuff. And then with NRF, Yes, it was a retail show, but the big retailers weren't the ones making moves at NRF. It was actually some of the smaller software and technology-driven startups that were pushing innovation in the space. And it's just an exciting time to see what is tech going to do and how is it going to adapt to different industries. I mean, I know we saw everything from giant quadcopters to warehouse management softwares and robots to engine monitoring fluid and sensors. Really, we're on the cusp of innovation constantly. So for this software and technology podcast show, I didn't really want to highlight big, exciting tech because that's what we talk about all the time, right? Yes, we understand. AR is big. VR is big. Uh, AI is big. Really, I wanted to take a step back and look at how are people being affected by some of that tech? Or really more concretely, how is that tech integrating with the world around it, especially from a B2B perspective? So, on today's show, we're looking at cause and effect for two markets outside of software and technology. And we'll start with the construction industry. I think the AEC industry is often pegged as technologically simple. And that's really from people that don't work within the industry. Yeah, there's machinery, but it's mostly manpowered, and there's not a ton of cybersecurity to account for, right? Wrong. As we've started to see more recently, too, hacking into construction site equipment is just much too simple and could pose plenty of issues. Imagine a bad actor connecting to your crane and then driving that crane into a skyscraper full of people. I mean, that's literally terrorism, and it's horrifying, and it's possible. And I really don't think that the industry is prepared, and in some cases even aware, that this is a pressing issue. New tech brings new problems, cause and effect. So how should construction companies, construction security companies, and site operators address this growing issue of potentially vulnerable software and technology? MarketScale host Shelby Skirhawk digs in with some insight from Joseph Steinberg. He's a security advisor and consultant for Joseph Steinberg LLC. This is a solid feature. And after this, we'll get a look at the drone industry. Let's jump in. 
You can hack a database. You can hack a website. You've heard of people hacking cars, but I bet you didn't know you can hack a construction crane. Two white hat hackers with cybersecurity giant Trend Micro did exactly that when they demonstrated how easy it is to compromise radio frequency equipment on a construction site. Armed only with their laptops, scripts for running their hacks, and some cheap radio hardware. The researchers tested their scripts and hacking skills at 14 different construction sites using five different types of attacks. They found that controllers that use RF are susceptible to command spoofing, where an attacker within range can capture radio traffic, selectively modify those packets, and automatically craft arbitrary commands. It's all very technical stuff, but basically these type of attacks are able to be carried out in minutes and at low cost. By successfully taking over the site's crane using only this equipment, the two hackers expose inherent flaws and new vulnerabilities in radio frequency or RF remote controllers. You see, the problem lies in the communications between the controllers and the cranes. To get into the system, the hackers only had to reverse engineer that communication coming from the RF controller. Yep. In today's Internet of Things, anything that can be controlled remotely can and probably will be hacked. That's according to cybersecurity expert Bruce Schneier. Schneier is Chief Technology Officer of IBM Resilient, a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Center, and a prolific writer about cybersecurity issues since 2004 on his blog Schneier.com. He recently highlighted Trend Micro's report about the inherent vulnerabilities of large construction machinery in a blog post. The overwhelming consensus from Schneier and other cybersecurity experts? It was only a matter of time. Trend Micro released a report afterwards called The Security Analysis of Radio Remote Controllers for Industrial Applications, and it demonstrated just how vulnerable RF remote controllers that are found in cranes, drills, mining machinery, and other industrial devices can be. The Japan-based company found the vulnerability across several different brands of equipment produced by the seven most commonly deployed vendors. Bill Malik, VP of Infrastructure Strategies for Trend Micro, says, quote, This research demonstrates a concerning reality for owners and operators of heavy industrial machinery, where RF controllers are widely found. By testing the vulnerabilities our researchers discovered, we confirmed the ability to move full-sized industrial equipment deployed at construction sites, factories, and transportation businesses. This is a classic example of both the new security risks that are emerging as well as how old attacks are being revitalized to attack the convergence of OT and IT. So the relative simplicity of this hack highlights just how damaging a catastrophe could be if the cranes were hacked maliciously. The damage could range, quote, from theft and extortion to sabotage and injury, the researchers wrote in a paper. Essentially, that means an attacker could remotely take control of a huge piece of building wrecking equipment and make it their own remote control toy. You know, thankfully, this was done by researchers, but imagine it had been a construction project. You know, imagine a skyscraper. We've had situations with skyscrapers in New York where cranes have collapsed. It's rare, but imagine one happened because of a hack attack. That's cybersecurity thought leader Joseph Steinberg, who says it's about time that all industries, not just high tech, 
pay attention to cybersecurity. The crane, being smart, has tremendous benefits. It can tell you if you're doing something wrong. You can collect all sorts of uh, reporting information for a central body. It can warn you when a piece may be wearing out. It can warn you if you're doing something dangerous. It, it can you know, do all sorts of things because there are computers in it that can be extremely valuable for the operator. The question is, what about the security? Well, is the average company that's buying you know, or leasing uh, you know, fixed cranes really thinking about hackers? Or are they thinking about, hey, you know, if we use the smart cranes, we get the ability to reduce the likelihood of an accident because these things can warn us about other things. So they're much safer. Are they thinking about the hacking you know, that could maybe compromise the warning system? Probably not. Unfortunately, it's very much like the, the model of IoT security risk is almost like a home alarm systems where you find that a very significant number of people don't get home alarm systems until after they're robbed. It, it's sort of a similar concept. In many cases, until something goes wrong and IoT devices get hacked, people don't properly think about the risk. We have quickly computerized just about everything that we interact with. And in almost none of the cases have we considered the security ramifications. I'm saying we as a society, uh, you know, you can buy a refrigerator with computers in it. Every car has computers in it. Washing machines have computers in them. Everything's got computers in them because we can make them do all sorts of cool things. How many people have considered the security repercussions of it and how many vendors have considered it? Uh, it's minuscule and it's actually quite scary when you think about it. Uh, but that's the reality of the world that we live in today. With this glaring security gap evident, what do people in the construction industry do? I asked Bruce Shire that question, and it's ironic that the software we use to record interviews for this podcast only uses a specific browser that Shire won't touch. And the phone call recorder that I use as a backup didn't record his side of the conversation either. So, I can only tell you what he said using the same dry intonation that he did. He said nothing. There's nothing you can do, or at least not much. Large cranes and heavy machinery don't have security patches that can be applied, especially over the air like Teslas do, for example. Joseph Steinberg is a little more optimistic, at least from a consumer standpoint, saying that construction companies need to be asking for and insisting on better security in this equipment. You know, you, if you're acquiring or leasing equipment that is connected today, you need to ask the party from whom you're obtaining it what has been done from a security perspective. You know, if there's a you know known hack attack, for example, against a particular kind of crane, you want to ask, you know, what have you done to make sure that nothing goes wrong, you know, while we're using this, that this cannot be hacked. I mean, it may turn out that you have to have physical access to the thing to, to hack it, so there may be you know ways to physically protect against these types of things. But in some cases, these things can be done wirelessly and you don't need physical access to the device, in which case you want to know, you know, we have turned off the wireless access to this particular crane, for example, because we know that if you leave it on, it's potentially vulnerable. You need to know these things. You need to know what it takes to protect it, um, you know, and that steps have been taken, even if there is no known hack. So if you've got a crane model, for example, that was not used in this particular case, you're still going to want to ask if it's connected. What's been done to make sure somebody can't hack it and disable it, you know, or cause it to do the wrong thing while it's in use? So we've sort of reinforced the idea, you know, that this is a crane that's got, you know, connectivity in it. 
Really what it is is a specialized computer, full-blown computer, that has a crane attached to it. If you think about it as a computer, well, of course it needs security. If you think about it as a crane that's, you know, got connectivity, cranes don't need cybersecurity. And it's that paradigm shift that we really need. People need to understand these are full-blown computers. When you have a car today, there is a full-blown computer in there. When you have a smartphone, it's got more processing power than it took NASA to put a man on the moon, right, in this little device. These are full-blown computers, full security risks. They need to be secured with all sorts of proper procedures. Trend Micro says they still strongly recommend applying timely patches to prevent attackers whenever possible. System integrators should also look into devices with virtual fencing features, which would disable devices when the remote controllers are out of range. They say, quote, to be sure, this will not eliminate the possibility of vulnerability exploitation, as we pointed out, but is a step in the right direction. Ultimately, the long-term solution of abandoning proprietary RF protocols in favor of open, standard ones should be adopted. Without safety protocols in use, interoperability, reliability, and security can be at risk. Specifically, Trend Micro recommends companies that use RF controllers implement comprehensive security measures, including software and firmware patching, as well as building on standardized protocols. And advice for everyone. It's time to prioritize the cyber risks associated with all devices, big and small. For MarketScale, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks again to Shelby and Joseph for giving us that insight and really a look at a a growing problem. I'm interested in seeing which side of the AEC industry steps forward and takes control of this growing issue. Is it going to be the construction companies? Is it going to be the security detail that is hired often to guard in motion security projects? Is it going to have to be the operators themselves that are manning this equipment? Are they going to have to be trained on how to ensure the back end is secure? I mean, it's it's an interesting conversation. Maybe it's the manufacturers of the cranes and of the equipment themselves. They need to make sure that their layout is safe and easy to use and not vulnerable to bad actors. You know, when we're approached with these new issues, often the big struggle is who is going to solve this issue. Everyone waits for the other person to do it, etc. So it's good to get the issue in front of the industry now, have this conversation now, and see how should construction companies, professionals, look to prevent cybersecurity hacks during the construction process. Our next piece of cause and effect in the industry is a bit more tangible, mostly because there's legislation tied to it. For this second feature, we're looking at the drone market, really one of the most exciting within software and technology, and the effect of the FAA 2018 Reauthorization Act. And for the most part, the industry was happy with the changes that the act proposed, especially that Congress will fund the FAA for five years, effectively putting drone regulations back in the hands of the government and not turned into a privatized system. A lot of drone forecasters were thinking that the future of drone regulations would become more privatized, but alas, that's not what ended up happening. And we wanted to get a feel for how is this regulation affecting 
innovation within the drone market, uh, within construction of new products, within deployment of new drones, within how professionals train and operate these drones. So to hear it firsthand, we spoke with Mike Peel. He's the marketing manager for InterDrone, one of the premier yearly drone trade shows that I had the pleasure of visiting back in September in Las Vegas. It was wonderful. I got to see some of the leaders showcase their coolest tech and uh, coolest applications for drones. But, you know, getting to be the organizer for an event like this means you really have an ear to the ground for what is changing and how are professionals reacting to something like this big legislation passing and going into effect for 2019. So here's MarketScale host Sean Heath getting Mike Peel's thoughts. Welcome to MarketScale Software and Technology. I'm your host, Sean Heath. Now, there are technologies that come along that take a while to catch on. One of those technologies is drone technology. And I think it's safe to say, not only have we not scratched the surface of what we will be able to achieve with drone technology moving forward, I think we've hardly gotten the thing out of the box enough to even see the surface that we're trying to scratch. Well, I know somebody who has not only fully unboxed it, he's looking at it from all sides, every possible direction, and that's the guest on the podcast today, Mike Peel. He's the marketing manager for InterDrone. Mike, how are you today? Very good. Nice to meet you. I, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I have to say, um, I'm kind of jealous. I'm always jealous of people who get to play with drones more than I do, which is none. Um, I it's, it, But I love the toy aspect of it, but the part of drone technology... The part of drone technology that fascinates me even more is the philosophical approach. The, the requirements, the regulations, the give, the take, the discoveries that we are going to experience moving forward... You're right at the front of that. You see things coming before the rest of us even think of that being a possibility. So I'm, I'm very excited to have a chance to talk to you today. Let's start off with talking about, to get right to it, let's talk about the FAA Reauthorization Act. You know, we can talk all day long about how cool the technology is, but if it's illegal to use, there's not going to be a lot of growth. There's not going to be a lot of uh, expansion. Talk to me a little bit about the FAA's Reauthorization Act and what that means moving forward. Well, sure. With the drone industry, one of the more interesting aspects of it in comparison to other technologies that we're able to kind of skirt around regulation, drones by their very nature, being aircraft, had to embed themselves in it. And most of the firm's even on the software side that are successful now, understood that that element very early on. So the Reauthorization Act of 2018 has kind of been a long way coming. If you go back five years ago, there was no clear regulation on small UAS, um, which is another word for drones in the United States. And the FAA was treating them under the law that was written specifically for manned aircraft. And this Reauthorization Act is for five years. So Unlike the last couple of years, which have been year after year, this one's a big one. And it's actually traditionally how the Reauthorization Act timeline was, was set up. 
the things that were covered in it that was probably the few things that were were most striking were the repeal of the hobbyist loophole, as it was affectionately called, which is Section 336, which means that the FAA does have authorization to um, make rules for model aircraft. So we were dealing with before that was essentially commercial operators were held to one standard, and if you were using it as a hobby, it was held to another standard. That's a very big loophole. Honestly, drones weren't going to be able to move forward on the level that we wanted as an industry if that loophole existed. So the hobbyists lost out. Um, but in truth, they were probably being a little bit too strict with their their assumptions. You know, with drones, because the technology is so easy to use and so easy to scale, it was really necessary to have more law and restriction around their usage. Um, because you could fill the sky with them. We're already seeing, you know, with Gatwick recently, there was a scare in New Jersey uh, only a day ago. Um, I don't know when this podcast will come out, but it was recent. And whether or not drones were actually proven to be at those places, the idea of a drone being around an aircraft, a, a manned aircraft with passengers, is a scary thought because it's so easy to fly. And the difference between that and a traditional hobby aircraft is you need technical know-how to build a model aircraft, fly it. Uh, specifically, helicopters are even harder. And with a drone, anybody can go to a store with a couple hundred dollars, pick it up, and attempt to fly. And that's a very different world. But that's also what makes this technology so powerful and I think why industry is so interested in it because the return on investment you could get out of a drone is is clear and it's fast and they could produce a lot of data so that's actually also in the bill um, how data is is handled so you would think most of this would be covered by uh, law already that's concerned with data privacy but in general when a new technology comes along it's pretty good to have it outlined within the terms that are relatable to that technology. So that's what the uh, the data privacy provision in the Act is about. And then there's also um, a matter of record keeping for the agencies uh, and institutions that are in charge of managing this new type of aircraft. So the DOT is in charge of record keeping now. This is a a an area that changes very rapidly you know this reauthorization act is very recent we're just in the first month of 2019 and already some of the thought press processes have had to evolve and adapt talk to me a little bit if you would about the recent announcement of the ANPRM and the NPRM and how those will impact drones moving forward one of the things about the drone industry that's kind of annoying is all the acronyms you need to learn. So if uh, you're a listener and you're wondering what the ANPRM and NPRM stand for, uh, one is the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which means we're going to talk about the rules that we're going to make. And then the other one is the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which is announcing what's going to actually end up um, eventually going into effect. Uh, kind of laying out the broad strokes of what we're, we should be expecting when uh, the bill goes to Congress. So for the ANPRM, uh, the FAA is actually seeking 
the the public's feedback on on a couple of issues. Um, and I I would actually, um. I I would say that it would be good if you know something about uh, your drone program that you think would be valuable to the FAA. Uh, that could help shape those rules. That uh, would definitely go to FAA.gov and and then participate in the AM PRM. So there's a proposed rulemaking. So there's been a couple of things that have been interesting for industry. One is is night flights, mostly because during the day you have personnel walking around. So inspections are actually probably in, in many cases better done at night or at least later in the day, and the proposal is saying you, you wouldn't need to have a specialized waiver to do the night flight. And then the other thing is flights over people. Originally, and with good reason, uh, because drones are essentially flying dumbbells when you think about it. If they were one was to fall out of the sky, that's as good as putting a weight in the sky. And if that were to make contact with any appendage of a human, uh, especially the head, that could lead to death or injury very easily. But when you think about it in comparison to other technologies that we tolerate, such as cars, which are about two tons of steel, and we allow children to cross the street uh, in their path, um, it, it kind of seemed a little overburdened, the way that the law was phrased. And as long as the, the basic setup that the FAA is, is going for now uh, with their new open, to bus open for Business tagline is that if you could prove that you're a safe pilot and that you've gone through the process, the knowledge test, the understanding um, that is necessary to get a Part 107 certification, for example, then it's probably okay that you're flying over people, that you're cautious enough. And the more of a history that you build with that, the easier that's going to be. So night flights and flights over people, things that were unimaginable even two years ago, are now totally going to be on the soon. I would imagine another real area of concern is the actual definition of a drone. The, the format that a drone can take can be as small as something that can be held in your hand to as large as something that's as big as a suitcase. As you mentioned, these are it, the definition of a drone has to be sort of nebulous in order to cover everything. And I'm curious there at some point much like uh, automobiles you know you have different types of licenses based on the usage of the vehicle and the size of the vehicle a CDL license is different than a passenger vehicle license I would imagine at some point there will be a strata uh, differentiating between different types of drones and different usages and different licenses one of the things they'll also have to do is uh, from a data standpoint, and a, a, an additional type of security is with the remote ID. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the security concerns that come along with these regulations. So, being at the center of the drone industry on the on the innovation side, right? Because we run a conference and we're trying to educate people to actually advance this technology. One of the things that Interdrone's team didn't have on their radar until this year was the security concerns at the level that I think the Department of Defense was thinking of them. Um, that's something that we're making up for because it is of concern. You, we saw the bombing in Venezuela, for example, which was a failed bombing. And, you know, not to give anybody any ideas, but there's probably 
better ways to execute that plan than using a drone. But somebody's going to train. That's the problem. So the Department of Defense has concerns, and I think they're probably more sensitive to it considering what they use drones for in their line of work, that these things could be weaponized. Um, and they could be weaponized fast, and the barrier to entry to using them is is very low. I mean, that's pretty much all the concerns around drones revolve around that low barrier to entry. So with remote identification, uh, this was a necessity for actually a couple reasons, even beyond security. One, for integration into what will be the UAS traffic management system, which is uh, called UTM, um, having the ability to know all of the actors in that space under that single system is important for air traffic control and management. And actually the two airport incidences that we were talking about earlier, uh, the hope would be that if a remote identification system was implemented, that that wouldn't be a thing. That even if there were three drones in the sky and you didn't know what one was, you'd be able to you know, subtractively find out which drone that was and, and trace it back. So the bill is telling the FAA that they're going to have to come up with a standard, or actually I should rephrase that, they're going to set the standard for, for remote identification. Having spoken with uh, some people on the policy side, what this essentially means is the FAA is actually looking to industry to develop standards uh, before they kind of come up with a set of rules uh, that they think would fit a remote ID standard. If you're looking or hoping that it'll be one technology like ADSB or on 5G, chances are that it'll actually just be this set of standard and it could integrate both of those. So as long as you're meeting these, this minimum requirement of having a drone tracked um, and accessible to other actors in the airspace so they can fly safely, then the FAA will be okay with it. And that's what will go down on paper. So we talk about the regulations, and they're not 100% clear yet, but they're moving in that direction, and there will be um, more codification. Things will be clarified. For a company that does not currently use drone technology, but that could greatly benefit from it, this is not a situation where you want to wait until the regulations are crystal clear before you dip your toe in the water, right? Well, uh, I should probably safe harbor myself and uh, say that I can't give any legal advice and my opinions are my own. But when it really comes down to it, you don't want to be left behind on, on drone technology. And that it's actually pretty easy, especially if you're a larger organization, to find somebody who would be interested enough to get a Part 107 and start flying a drone for your, for your organization. You want to get a foothold for a couple reasons. One, your competitors are probably already thinking about drones because the ROI is, is proven. So they're on, drones are on their radar, so to speak. Uh, that ROI is actually based on the data you collect. And for example, uh, if you were to train a machine learning algorithm or get software to be specified for the tasks that you're building out your drone program for, you actually want that localized data. The difference between a windmill, let's say, in uh, the middle of the country in the plains versus one that's out in the ocean, the wear and tear is completely different. Therefore, the pixels and light that are coming into the drone are completely different. And the algorithms you'll need to be build to successfully um, fix or inspect those assets um, needs to be built up now. 
So if your competitor is doing that today and you're not, that means they're going to have an edge on you. They're going to have better data that's more educated. And then also learning how to integrate that, that data pipeline into your, your organization. These are almost bigger concerns than the regulation in the sense that you're either adding a new system entirely uh, and you have to figure out how to get this massive amount of data that a drone uh, creates into it, or you're uh, starting from scratch and you don't know how to build these IT protocols at all yet. Uh, for example, public safety agencies are facing that because their job is pretty busy to begin with, you know, fighting crime and all that fun stuff. But when it comes down to it, uh, they are, probably aren't used to having uh, <laughs> movie studio levels of video data stored that needs to be publicly accessible if there's a request made, but also secure enough that it can maintain the privacy of the citizens that have been captured on it. Well, it is always fascinating to get to talk about drones, and to have the opportunity to talk with you today has been very cool. I feel that I may have neglected to mention the following point. InterDrone is the largest fully dedicated commercial drone event in North America, and the voice of Interdrone has been my guest today, Mike Peel, the marketing manager for Interdrone. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it, and I have a feeling we're going to have an opportunity to have more conversations moving forward as things start to shake out. Well, thanks, Sean, for having me, and yeah, I mean, you could find me on the Interdrone podcast where a lot of the information you heard today comes from our expert guests who eventually become our expert speakers. And we're going to be sharing those people uh, with market scale this year as, um, you know, just to get the word out there for what great stuff drones are doing. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. And on that note, having gotten some cause and effect insight, both for the construction industry and the drone industry and how software is either powering that cause or powering that effect we wrap up today's episode of the software and technology podcast show it's a sad one (laughs) always tough to sign off but we appreciate y'all listening and we hope that you always gain something valuable after having listened to our content and consumed our content but i hope you're not fatigued yet because we have plenty more around the corner including some more drone specific content We're actually headed to ILMF. It's a LiDAR mapping-specific drone show. It's right around the corner, and it's honestly some of the most exciting stuff happening within the drone industry. When we look at how drones are being used for surveying, it really exceeds one industry. You know, you can survey for retail management, for hospitality management, for construction site operations. There's a whole ton of innovative ways to use survey mapping, and this show is going to showcase all of that from 
in-the-air drones to actually underwater drones as well. And that's something that I'm looking forward to seeing. How is the FAA 2018 Reauthorization Act affecting underwater drones? I mean, there's not airspace for them to have regulations in. It's all maritime, so there must be some different changes there. Um, is the FAA even monitoring underwater drones? It's it's an interesting conversation and something that I'm looking forward to hopefully getting from ILMF. So stay tuned for that content. It'll be a good one. But till then, if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous podcast content, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. If you're interested in participating in the show or you have a suggestion for a great story idea, a great person to profile, or a project to even do a video on, shoot us an email. We're always open to ideas. You can hit me up at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Again, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.